Welcome to Drinking Bros, presented by BlackRifleCoffee.com. Put down the water and grab a fucking drink. Drink, 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 drink. Welcome to Drinking Bros, kids. It's Veterans Day, which is always a special day for everybody involved in the podcast. Today's even more special. We've had a lot of of shows throughout the history of Drinking Bros, and I can easily say this is probably the most powerful, inspiring episode we've had to date in Drinking Bros. And uh, the guy who chose to to share his life with us today is a friend of ours. He's been on the show numerous times, but he's never told his life story and what he actually went through. His name is Omar Crispy Avia. He's an unbelievably inspiring person. And today, for the first time, he decided to share his entire life story with us, including what actually happened to him overseas. And um, man, I, I look, I've never been choked up on this show before, but this episode got me. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. This is my favorite show that we've ever done in the history of Drinking Bros. But first, we have some sponsors who pay for this whole shit wagon to be on the air. First up, we've got BlackRifleCoffee.com. Oh, yeah. It'll be our CC for the holidays. Look, the holidays are right around the corner, kids. We're, we're here at this point. Once November 1st hits, it's all, it's all over. You got to start buying for Christmas. Go to BlackRifleCoffee.com. Get your loved ones some, some bags of coffee. Some K-Cups, some apparel, some new mugs, or just just some salt rock coasters. They got it all over at BlackRifleCoffee.com. Coffee that is made 100% by veteran hands. Oh, yeah, so you know it's good. It's a premium roast-to-order coffee. They make it fresh in-house, then bag it up and ship it straight to you. Use the one-time promo code DRINKINGBROS20. That's DRINKINGBROS20 for 20% off. I would highly recommend using that on the Coffee Club of the Month program. We love our BRCC. Next up, we've got StrikeForceEnergy.com. OG homies. You know them real well after their their last prank. I don't even know if it was a prank or if it was real. I I mean, it's real because I see people drinking it online. They gave away 15,000 packs for free. Uh, That's why you should follow them on Instagram and Facebook. They do shit like this all the time. We're just like, hey, just write your name in. Boom, we'll send you some free Strike Force. Uh, in the meantime, if you haven't had this, get on the fucking Strike Force train. Kick the can, kids. You don't need the cans anymore. They've got four tasty flavors orange, original, lemon, and make America grape again. They got a 10 pack, a 40 pack, and a 750 milliliter bottle. Yet another one for the holiday season. Put a little bottle of Strike Force underneath that tree this year. Watch your family go bug fuck. Go to StrikeForceEnergy.com, type in the promo code DRINKINGBROS, as always, for 20% off. You know that's good every time. Not just one time, but every time. And they ship everywhere in the entire world. We got a lot of listeners over in uh, Australia and England. Yes, kids, they ship to you too. StrikeForceEnergy.com, get on it. DRINKINGBROS, 20% off. Premier energy drink in the biz. Next up, we got ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. I love that they made our own home our own homepage. Who has that? 
No one. Uh, Ghostbed has done that for us. They've got they've got new mattresses in house. Those cooling mattresses everybody keeps hitting me up about. And they're like, yo, man, that's the fucking truth. Yes, yes, they are. So are the cooling sheets and that adjustable base, by the way. Whoever built that is a goddamn genius. It's got USB ports in it, flashlights, all that shit. Because let's face it, your wife goes to sleep early. You're up in bed reading your phone for like a good hour, hour and a half before that that fucking Xanax kicks in before you go to sleep. You might as well be be reading something on the ghost bed. They've also got the ghost pillows, which are nice. Go to ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros and sleep so good it's scary. They... Have a pay-as-you-go plan, which nobody's offering, uh, especially to this crowd. You know what I'm saying? So take advantage of that before it's gone. Uh, Next up, we got bisonunion.com. New to this and true to this. Look, you know hashtag Bert from TV. You know the brand. You know the company. Uh, Earn your food, kids. Be the bison. This is the finest apparel that you can make for dudes right now in this world. Uh, Bert Kuntz and his wife Candace packed up, bought a, bought a cabin in the woods in Wyoming and said, fuck it. We're in for the long haul. We're going to make this the best goddamn apparel company on the planet. Uh, you wear their hats. You're already wearing their belts. Uh, now they got cowboy boots over there. Um, and, and their t-shirts. Look, you see us in our Instagram and Facebook wearing that shit all the time. We love them, and now they're a sponsor. Uh, and the beauty of it is, you guys are the ones that asked for a promo code for Bison Union. Congratulations, you have it. It's Drinking Bros, 20% off. Not a one-time use. It's all the time. If you really want to load up for Christmas, go to bisonunion.com. Dude, you can buy everything on their goddamn sites uh, with, with the 20% off. Whoo, that is a savings, and uh, that shit lasts forever, man. Great quality, man. They're really, really fucking doing it right over at bisonunion.com. Again, promo code Drinking Bros for 20% off. That's good for forever. So just keep gassing it over there. Uh, next up, we've got grillyourassoff.com. All, I feel like all of these sponsors are perfect for the holidays um, because these are gifts that you genuinely want. I, you, you need seasonings for Thanksgiving. You need seasonings. For that turkey on Christmas Day. You need seasonings year-round. And let's face it, you're going to get them anyways. Are you going to get the Lowry's at the store? Are you going to get the Montreal steak seasoning? No. Go buy it from a company that's 100% veteran-owned. Go to grillyourassoff.com. Type in the promo code DRINKINGBROS for 15% off. While you're there, grab that beef jerky. That beef jerky is the finest I've ever had. No lie, man. I eat that shit all the time. Uh, I'm bulking. I'm lifting weights, eating jerky all day. I love it, man. That sweet and spicy is my jam. They got a four-pack for $25. And uh, they also got some mugs over there. Uh, some, some refreshing little beer mugs that uh, me and my lady uh, drink out of a lot. Go to grillyourassoff.com. Try Crispy's Spicy Habanero uh, blend. That's fucking amazing. Uh, again, grillyourassoff.com. Promo code DRINKINGBROS. 15% off. Last but not least, we've got grenadesoap.com. Incoming! Grenadesoap.com. How do I love the let me count the ways? No, let me sniff the ways. Why is it called grenadesoap.com? Because it's shaped like a, like a grenade. What's the special ingredient? Gunpowder. Yes, that's real. There's real gunpowder inside each bar of soap. Dude, it acts like a, a, a fucking... It's just like an exfoliant. Like it's amazing. Uh, you, you you rub your body with it. They got a taint scrubber that comes with it. That's no lie, by the way. Everybody keeps buying these taint scrubbers. It's ass eating season. Clean clean yourself up, kids. Uh, you never know when when you're gonna take home a one night stand or a Tinder date, and she's gonna flip you over and say, "Let me let me go around to the back door." 
and see who's cooking in, in Dinah's kitchen. Um, <laughs> go to grenadesoap.com, type in the promo code Drinking Bros for 20% off. They've got all the best bathing products for dudes that way you actually smell like a dude and not your wife. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Omar Crispy Avia. How are you, buddy? I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm I'm fa- I'm fantastic. You're you one of our sleep with that new kid. No, not one, not one wink, <laughs> not one goddamn wink. Um, every everybody asks, like, oh, what's it like to have a newborn? Is this as crazy as, as everybody says? Yes, it is. And then you end up talking to people out in public. And you realize you're just a fucking asshole. Like everybody might as well be invisible. I think we need to start a program where we hire veterans that can sleep and, and they come to your house and they take care of your kids at night. That way you sleep the whole night and they get some money out of not being able to sleep. Yeah, ex- exactly. Here's what I've, right? I've found in every aspect of life. If you can get a veteran to do everything i think it would, the the world would be a, a safer more efficient place and that's the god's honest truth um, I, dude, dude i'm telling you so when we did when we did when we did range 15 working with everybody like yeah the, just being able to see the difference of how lazy like hollywood people are and a crew and all that other shit versus veterans it is yeah. night and fucking day like i, I mean dead serious um, well, I think that's just kind of embedded in everybody after basic training is kind of the thing where if you fuck up or you don't do your job, everybody else pays for it. So you don't want to be known as that guy. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so everybody performs at at a high level at all times. Yeah. And I mean, dude, even with the school shooting thing, like, dude, my proposal was why not hire veterans, man? Uh, just post up a couple veterans in every school. You, you think a kid would walk in with a gun and cross two veterans? Fuck no, they wouldn't. <laughs> not, 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 no, not at all. No, they wouldn't even make it through the doors without getting iced down. Um, <laughs> That's, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, congratulations. Oh, yeah. Here's a job. You just came back from overseas. Boom. And then you give them a, a free education, college education or something on top of it. Like, pay them a great salary and, and move on about life. Um, well, they're doing so a great job in denver all these um and um, you know, i don't want to get into all this but uh the dispensaries and in, in denver you know n- no bank wants to touch their money so everything that's done uh at a dispensary is cash only yep. just because of the way the state and everything so I-, I saw a small documentary the other day where they're actually hiring veterans that are coming back from overseas don't have jobs or whatever around the whole denver area or, or just colorado period and um they're hiring them to be escorts you know they-, they they strap them up or whatever and they're essentially um what are those guys called uh the big trucks with all the money um uh, yeah, yeah, yeah like, like a carriers, but you know they're protecting the money and whatnot to 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 the safe destination wherever it's got to go, and, and it's worked out great. They haven't had anybody try to rob them anymore. No, not at all. And I, did I'll take it a step further? Not that I participate in marijuana activities. Wink. Yeah, me neither. Wink. <laughs> um, but when I was I at the uh, the dispensary in Vegas, uh, the, yeah. the, the one of the the security guards stopped me. He was like, "Hey, man, I'm a veteran. I listen to Drinking Bros podcast." He's like, "I That's love it. Awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah." So. I, I had a dream that one guy did that to me in Vegas too. It was a dream. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was. It's a crazy dream. It was like, man, you're crispy. I was like, yeah. He's like, dude, you're awesome. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. 
It was totally a, totally a dream. <laughs> if my sponsors are listening, if my sponsors are listening, it was a dream. Yeah, yeah yours are. Mine, mine expected out of me. Um, I took a picture. I took a picture with a guy inside the dispensary. I was like, "Fuck it, here we go." You did? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I wish I would have done that in my dream. <laughs> For sure. Hey, Crispy Man, thanks for being on. I don't know if you know this. I, I told you this, on, I think, on episode 300, but uh, you've been one of our most requested guests as far as like sitting down and doing a one-on-one interview with. Yeah. Um, on Drinking Bros Podcast. So like everybody's asked, like, hey, man, uh, I follow him on Instagram. I, you know, I see his videos and I always see him hanging out with you guys. Like, What's his what's his story? What's his background like um you know what happened to him? Uh and and how is he so positive in his day-to-day life after everything that he's gone through? And I was like, man, I so I hit you up the other day and I was like, dude, let's let's do a show and that way you can tell the audience, man, because you're one of the most fascinating people and inspiring people that I've ever met and uh oh, I, yeah, I I'd, I'd love just to talk to you about your life um if that's all right with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's great. Um that's awesome. Thanks for everybody that called in and, and was asking about it, man. That that truly means the world to me. When you called me and, and told me, I was like, there's no way yeah. these degenerates don't want to listen to me. <laughs> no, no d- dude. I, I, every every time you're on, man, everybody asks. And I you know, I think we've done it with the majority of our close friends. And uh, yeah. now that you guys all live in the same area um, in Texas, you know, shit, you're over come there on, all, all the time. Come on down, yeah. man. Come on down. Come on. Uh, look, man, if it was in Austin, are you in Austin or San Antonio? I'm in between. So I'm in a small town called Wimberley. Uh, I'm right in the middle and smack between both. So it takes me 35 minutes here to the office and it takes me like 40 minutes into Austin. So uh, I'm in, I'm, I'm doing what I've always wanted to do. I'm in the country, man. So it's, it's, it's awesome. That's great. I love it. Yeah. I got deer in front of my property every morning and evening when I throw corn out and I watch them and I'm watch them grow and get bigger and bigger. And then, you know, hunting seasons are on the corner. So daddy's going to get some meat. Ooh, I saw your fridge on, I think it was Jack Mandeville's Instagram. And I was like, God damn it, man. <laughs> I, I just give me like two pounds of it. Just give me two pounds. Come of that on, bison. man. You, anytime you're down here, you let me know. I got Buffalo. Uh, I got water Buffalo. I got elk, uh, red stag, uh, axes, regular whitetail. I mean, you name it, I got it all. And, and the season's starting again, so I'm going to have a lot more meat. Man, you you were speaking my language. Are you from Texas originally? <laughs> no. So if we're going to jump into this, man, yeah. I, this is something that I've never done in a podcast. I've never really spoken about it. Um, but I, I'll let it out there. So I was born in Mexico. Um I was born in a, in a small place called Villahermosa, Tabasco, which is close to Cancun. It's way down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I was born there. Um, my mom and my my dad met. My dad did his time in the service, and then he got out and became a musician. And he was um, he was a musician with this band that was super popular all over Mexico. So my dad was traveling Mexico and Chicago and ev- all over the U.S. I mean, everywhere where there was a, a large Hispanic community, that's where my dad was. And um, so he made his way down there. And um, was he was he, he in the service in Mexico or the United States? No, the United States. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So he. Yeah, my, so my so your your parents are American. No, my okay. dad was also born in Mexico and because of his parents, you know, and migrating to the U.S., they, you know, after all the paperwork and the right procedures and stuff, they, they, he got his citizenship. Gotcha. Okay. So my dad got his citizenship, um, when, you know, down in Mexico was traveling all that. He, he actually joined the service and back then, uh, he was a resident when he joined the service, but they weren't giving out 
uh, what they do now. Like, like now, if you're a resident and you join the service, you get automatically get uh, your citizenship. Well, back then they didn't do that, so my dad still had to go through everything else. But he just wanted to serve. So he did, became a citizen, went down there, met my mom. Uh, my mom was working at a gift store, a uh, gift shop down there in, in Mexico. And um, they met, fell in love, got married. <clears throat> um, my dad quit the band thing. He's like, I can be a traveling dude, you know, in a band if I'm going to have kids, if I'm married. So he kind of gave that up. Um, was working in California with my uncles in the fields. Um, you know, they, they all spoke Spanish and English, so they were kind of managers and stuff, but sometimes they work the field. So my dad always made money and send it back home to Mexico to my mom. Um, so I'm the oldest of three. It was me, then my brother, and then my sister. Um, and, you know, it got to a point where my dad got tired of, of having his family in Mexico and sending money and not seeing them often. And you know how it is, man. When you're away from your family and and working, you what you want to you want to come home to them at the end of the day. Sure. Um yeah, so my dad actually, you know, they sold my mom and, her, and his house in, in Mexico down there, and they moved to a town called Matamoros, which is right next to Brownsville, Texas. It's uh, it's a, this, uh, we're the tip of Texas, man. When it comes to the South Side, we're, we, we I can literally throw a rock from Mexico to the U.S. and vice versa. Oh wow! Yeah, so my my dad moved us there, and he was going to start all the procedures to to make us citizens and bring us over to the U.S. <clears throat> Sorry. And um, so he brings us over. We started living in Matamoros for a couple of years. I think I was about seven when we got to Matamoros. We lived there two years, so we were about nine. And even at that, man, my dad was not satisfied. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm still having to wake up like at five in the morning just to get to work at seven in the U.S. And and then when I get out of work, you know, the bridge is so long just to get back home. You know, I'm getting home at nine and I'm not seeing my kids. So my dad started the procedure to make us citizens, and it was going to take about five years. And um, oh wow, I was like, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a long procedure. And my dad was advised by his attorney. He said, "You can do this if you can get them across illegally. All you have to do is pay the fine for them being here illegally, and then we can start the paperwork." Well, my dad was like, "Well, shit, that that sounds better. Like, I don't want to wait five years." And I was nine, my brother was seven, and my sister was five. Um, so my dad did not want us to get um, uh, snuck into the uh, U.S. through the river because, you know, the currents in there are pretty strong. And I don't think people realize how hard the currents are, are down there. And um, there wasn't a huge cartel presence back then, but there was still people that were they were mugging other uh, immigrants trying to get across, you know, because they knew they have money and they're coming to the U.S. So my dad refused to do that. So... After weeks of planning, uh, my father had a old school LeBaron, man. You remember those cars? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think every yeah. everybody's dad had a LeBaron back in the day. Yeah. My dad had a convertible, and uh, he uh, he came home one day, and um, th- by the way, this is what I'm about to say. This conversation was all in Spanish. Sure. He comes, o- he comes over, and... Um, he comes over with brand new clothes. He's got gifts that have been wrapped and he's got balloons and all this stuff. And he gives us the clothes. He's like, go change. And we're like, cool. And I was like, dad, where we're we going? My dad's like, we're going to a party. And I said, cool. So we all, you know, my mom's dressed up. My brother, my, well, all of us are all, you know, dressed like we're going to church. And uh, my dad pulls me aside and he goes, you're the oldest. You're going to sit behind me. And I said, yes, sir. And then he goes, and all I want you to learn is the word party. I want you to learn the word party. And I said, okay. 
Yes, sir. I got it. And um, I'm sitting back there and I'm rehearsing my one word, man. I'm like party, 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 party. And, you know, I'm, I'm just I got it in my head. I'm the oldest. I got to make my dad proud. I got this. And um, next thing I know, we're crossing this bridge. And I'm like, I look over at my mom and my mom just starts praying, like just insanely praying. And I had never seen my mom do that other than at church. So I was like, what the hell is going Like, I have no idea what's going on. Like, I, I was lost. And then we pull out to this booth. And there's this gentleman in a uniform and he's talking to my father in English, asking him where we're headed, what we're doing. My dad's like, oh, one of our nephews is having a birthday party in McDonald's. We're going to go out there and hang out for a couple of hours and come home back to Mexico. Um, and then he looks over at my mom and the uh, the custom guy looks at my mom and asks my mom if she was a U.S. citizen. My mom had no idea what the guy was saying, but my mom smiled and said yes. So he looks back at me and he goes, where are you guys headed? And all I could do and say was the word that my dad had told me to say. And I said, party. And the guy looks at us. He goes, all right, man, go ahead. Have a good time. Enjoy the party and let us cross the border. No way. Yeah. How nervous, so, how nervous were you? I wasn't nervous because I had no idea what was going on. I, I, I honestly, honest to God, I had no idea uh, what was going on or the events that were happening as they were happening. Like I, I had no clue what was going on. I just... I honestly thought we were going to a party because that's what my dad told me. And I just thought this might have been like a checkpoint for like a military checkpoint or something. You know, I had no concept of uh, uh, of, of the bridge or anything. I had never seen it before. I mean, I would seen it, but I didn't know that you could drive over. And all. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it was a different world for me. Right. So I had no idea what we were going on. And, you know, once we crossed, my dad told us, he was like, oh, welcome to Brownsville. And this is our home. And, you know, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, our house is back there. <laughs> like, all our stuff is there. <laughs> my dad's like, yeah, yeah, forget about that stuff. We're going to sell it over there and, and get on you things out here. And we pulled up and, you know, he had already rented a house. And I mean, my dad went like wow. balls to the walls. Yeah. He had everything set up, man. And, and, um, you know, we crossed, we had a house and, uh, it wasn't the biggest house. We, we were living in a one bedroom home and it was, um, it was, uh, my father, my mom, uh, they were sleeping on a, um, uh, air mattress. I slept on the couch and my brother and sister would take the bed cause they were the youngest. Um, so we live, uh, in the small house, uh, in Brownsville and then, the uh, place that my father was renting from, the lady had three houses. One was a one-bedroom, two-bedroom, and three-bedroom. And as my father and my mother, you know, my, my mother got a job. Um, it's just kind of a role that kicked in for me, man. I was the oldest. So I needed to take care of my brother and my sister in the summer when my mom wasn't working. I mean, was was out working. Uh, and my mother used to work the, um, you know, just a typical illegal job, man. She used to go pick shrimp. Uh, and these uh, fields that were full of mud, you know, they drain the water and all the shrimp stay there. So she was paid by the pound every day and how many shrimps she would pick. So I would stay home and, and help my brother and sister and, and feed them and make sure they were okay. You know, they weren't getting hurt or anything. And my mom go out, do that. And little by little, we started, they started little making a little more money. My dad took two jobs. So did my mom. Then we moved into the bigger home. Uh, all while I was going to high school, I mean, middle school and uh, elementary, middle school and then high school. But, um, you know, I used to come home from school because I was always they didn't have ESL back then. They didn't have the classes where they would teach you, you know, English and whatnot. So I was I, I was thrown out there with my legs and, and I needed to start running because I needed to keep up with everybody. So what I would do is when I would come home is uh, I would watch a lot of TV, man. I watched the Power Rangers, the Ninja Turtles, everything. And. 
and learn English through that. And I always made it a mission every single day when I would come home to pick up the the, uh, the dictionary and look up a word and, and uh, implement it in my vocabulary the next day or or in a sentence or, or, or anything. that If I got a chance to put that word out there, I would. Um, so that's kind of how I started speaking English. And um, and you taught yourself how to, how to do this or, or did your family suggest it? No, it was just kind of a thing that, that one of the teachers told me to do. Um, she's like, I, I will teach you as much as I can here. Um, she's like, but you know, you have to kind of take things up on yourself and learn. And I was like, okay. And, and it was a lot easier for my brother and my sister to learn just because they were so much younger. They were, you know, seven and five, you know, they still have time to, right. to play games and stuff and, and whatnot. And me, it was like third grade. I, I need to catch up with everybody else. Wow. Yeah. Cause in third grade, I mean, you're starting to learn, you know, us history and things like that. Like it's, 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 it's kind of, you know, more advanced obviously than if you're, you know, in kindergarten and things like that. Great. You're going to learn how to draw and, and, and whatever. But yeah. Third grade, you're starting to learn, you know, us history and, uh, questions, man. I can't, I can't even imagine how difficult <laughs> it was to catch up. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know what? It, it wasn't, I mean, I say it was hard, um, but it really wasn't just because, you know, at, at that age, you know, my brain still wasn't fully developed. So I was able to absorb everything that was being thrown at me. Uh, and, and, and I just learned, learned that way. So in a sense, it was hard, but it wasn't just because, um, you know, we're that young and, and you, you, you're, you're, you're allowed. I mean, your, your body lets you and your brain lets you learn a language faster than an adult i don't know if you ever heard that but it is 100 percent true a, a young kid can learn multiple languages opposed to somebody that's older it, it takes him a lot more time to do it so it was fairly easy yeah I, I've, I've heard that because i've you know i have a child now and they were like hey do you, yeah. you want to start teaching him spanish and i was like yeah absolutely you know you you guys can go ahead and do that and, and they told me the same story and um and it, it totally makes sense um, yeah but uh yeah i i, I guess the fact I've never spoken to somebody who's come over like that and then just been able to pick it up living in Los Angeles all these years. Um, yeah, they just, I, I don't know. It's, it's different. Like it, it seems like Spanish is so prevalent in Los Angeles that yeah. nobody really takes the time to learn English. Um, yeah. And the same thing here in Texas, if you go some places, you know, there's just towns where people don't speak English at all. And it's just, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, not the one way is, 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 you know, worse than the other. It's just uh, for school purposes. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, it, yeah. You find it interesting of, of what the teacher is going to be able to teach in Spanish or English. Um, yeah. Did, and I mean, did now you, they have ESL classes and they have all that stuff. So it's a lot easier for, um, for, for those people that don't speak a lot of English, they can learn. Yeah. Um, did you end up graduating high school? I did, man. So um, right after that, man, I, I honestly lived in all American. Um, I had an all American childhood, uh, you know, went to uh, elementary, picked up sports. Um, you know, I started becoming very interested in sports. Um, I've always been a big kid, man. Like, and I want to mean big. I was like by middle school, I was already six to uh, 185 pounds. Wow. And I was lifting weights. So I was, you know, just. I bet you. I bet you were wrecking people on the football field. Oh man, dude! I, yeah. So I was. <laughs> so I. So this is. The, it's really funny because I got interested in, in sports at that that age, and um, so I never did the pee wee and none of that stuff. I started playing football when I was in seventh grade because that's the only uh, here in Texas. 
you play uh, sports seventh through twelfth grade. You know they don't allow you to play as as a uh, as a sixth grader just because you know they don't think you're well developed yet. But one of the things that um, man, my whole life has been adversity, man. Um, so seventh grade, I, I I tried out and I made the B team, and I was pissed off because I wanted to be in the A team with with all my friends, and you know what I mean. It's just it's, it's, it was a pride thing. It was one of those things where when you talk about being in the A team, it's like yeah, I'm on the A team. You know the varsity squad, and um. I wasn't that. I was in the B team in basketball and in football. And it just, there was something that bucked about I, mean, I just hated it, man. And um, as we got older, um, you know, mom and dad still had the same job. So my seventh grade year, going into eighth, um, I went to the uh, local uh, sports park and recreation um, places that we had there. And one of them that we had was an open gym every day from 8 a.m. in the morning to about 6 in the afternoon. And my bro- my siblings and I spent every single hour in there. Because it was awesome. It was like daycare for our parents. And, you know, it was like 35 bucks a person. So my parents were saving a lot of money. <clears throat> and uh, we used to go in there, man, and I would practice football and basketball. And I was lifting weights. And I made it my mission that I was going to be in the A-team when I got to eighth grade. I made the A-team in eighth grade, both basketball and football. And I was a starter to top that. I took a lot of people's jobs away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, there was, it was, I never really had a bad childhood. I never grew up with anger or anything. I just don't under, I, but I was able to turn that, that anger on every time I stepped on the field. And, you know, I started hurting a lot of people. I, I started making um, my, my presence in football and a lot of uh, coaches, from the high schools were coming to watch me play and I was only an eighth grader. Like and this was the beginning of the season. I wasn't even I hadn't even committed to a high school or I had no plans of what school high school I was gonna go to. And um, you know, I already had coaches um showing up to our games and they were asking like, can you come to this school? Can you go to that school? Like we want you here, we want you there and uh, it was it was totally crazy to me. I was like, "Holy shit! I'm, I'm being scouted uh, <laughs> as an eighth for, grader for a high yeah as an eighth grader for high school." And same thing for basketball. But I ultimately made the choice of going uh, to the school that I went to. It's uh, Porter uh, Gladys Porter High School. I went there just because all my friends were going there. You know, and there was a few that were going to a different high school, and I just wasn't really close to them. But the majority of them ended up going there, and. Uh, I went, and when I got to high school, I was playing. Uh, I was a varsity starter as a freshman. Shit. Yeah, I was. I was. I was that good, man. I, I would hit people so hard. Um, what, there was a what game, positions you play? I was a defensive end. Oh, okay, okay uh, of course. Yeah, I played defensive end, and and uh, I played a little bit of tight end. Like, I didn't have that many touchdowns. I think career wise, the four years that I was there, I think I had a total of twelve touchdowns. That wasn't a lot. <clears throat> it's not. Um, it's not bad for high school, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially because I, I, I would play offense like every other game just because. Um, but yeah, I, I, by the time I was a, a senior in high school, I was ranked in the top 10 defensive ends in the state of Texas. Um, so a lot of, um, a, a lot of, uh, universities at that time were knocking on my door that wanted me to come play football. Um, so what'd you, what'd you end up doing? Did you, did you get a scholarship somewhere? I did. Um, but, let me backpedal a little bit. My sophomore year in high school um, is when 9-11 happened. Prior to that, uh, I want to say about two or three weeks before that happened is when I became a U.S. citizen. Really? Yeah. Um, I, my brother, well, Actually, my siblings and I all became citizens around that time. It's, that's how long it took for us to, um, to become citizens. You're, think, you're talking about third grade all the way up to 11th. Yeah, 10th grade. That's when I became a citizen. So it was a long, long 
um, process to become a citizen. We were residents, but we weren't citizens. <clears throat> um, so I remember being in the classroom, and um, for some reason, man, I had this eerie feeling. Like I, some, I felt like something was wrong. I just didn't know what was going on. And all of a sudden, the principal came in, uh, came over the intercom and said, "Hey, uh, teachers, stop teaching. Turn on the TVs. This is uh, this is major." And you know, we were like, "Well, what the hell's going on?" And you know, then we saw the second tower uh, get hit by that plane, and um, you know, they they, they, they issued a state emergency, and, and you know, we were under attack and and whatnot. And man, something in, in me sparked, and um, I think I was one of maybe five kids in that class that was crying, and, and it wasn't I wasn't intentionally crying my tears were just rolling um and i felt a sense of pride right there because i i I was an american i had become an american and i knew that my country our country had been hit and there was something that i needed to do because my two siblings had just become citizens as well and they were younger than i was so i i knew that i needed to go fight to to preserve our freedoms against those bastards that had hit us really really hard and uh, as a sophomore in high school, man, I had made up my mind that I was going to join the service. And um, right after high school, <clears throat> yeah, right after high school, I, I, you know, I, I had no plans of going to any university or playing football or doing anything at another level. That was what I wanted to do. Um, and I had talked to my father about it. And my dad was, my dad was, uh, he's like, you know, you do what you want to do, son. But you know, look at your options and uh, and tell me what you want to do. So I did. I kind of put it away. You know, I was a sophomore, um, kept on playing, kept on doing what I was doing. And uh, when my senior year came around, you know, I was already getting offered scholarships and stuff. And I never committed um, just because I had that in the back of my head. I knew that I wanted to do that. Um, But I was going to commit. I was going to commit to a school and uh, TCU is a school. Um, really? I was gonna com- yeah, I was going to commit and, uh, I ended up pulling back and, uh, I remember June 16th of, uh, 2004 or five, uh, 2004, uh, I walked into the recruiting office in June 26th. I was on an airplane headed to Fort Benning, Georgia, and it was the first time I had ever been on an airplane. <laughs> Holy shit. That's crazy. Yeah. And what did your parents say when you came, when you went home and said, Hey guys, I'm not going to. I'm not going to play football and take the scholarship. I'm I'm going into the military. Were they supportive? My dad was. My dad pulled me aside and was like, "Listen, you, you got to understand what you're getting into." Uh, my dad was a tanker, so he didn't really know what he was talking about. Freaking pogue, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, I uh, he pulled me aside and he's like, "Listen, you know this is this is not um, a job to take lightly. Um, this is what you got to expect." And um, this is what you got to give, you know, you got to give your 100 percent all the time because you have your brothers out there that are going to depend on you. He's like, this isn't this in high school anymore where, you you know, you can fuck around and and get by life. He's like, this is this is real life. And I said, yes, sir, of course. And um, that's the conversation I have with my dad. My mom was more upset than anything. Um, She wanted me to, you know, be the first one to get a a college degree in our family and and whatnot and and just be. you know, she wanted me to be something bigger, but, you know, she didn't really understand that I wanted to go fight. I, I wanted to, I wanted to go take the fight to these bastards for what they'd done was. And, uh, you know, I felt like it was, it was my duty, man. Cause I, like I said, I, I wanted to make sure my brother and my sister still had the opportunities that I had. Um, and, and I wanted them to, 
become anything they wanted to become. You know, a lot of people have uh, a lot. Of, I've heard from a lot of people that say, you know, I signed a blank check to the U.S. with with everything that I did. But for me, it was the opposite. The U.S. signed a blank check to me and said, hey, here you go. Uh, be the best American you can become and, you know, become whatever you want to become. You you can be anything in this country. Here's our check to you. Do as you please. And I just felt like it was the right thing to grab that check, tear it up and give them mine and be like, hey, listen, we're even. This is what I want to do because this is my country now. So that's what ultimately made me made me go join the service and got to Fort Benning, Georgia and became an infantryman. Gotcha. Did did you know when you joined the service what branch you wanted to go into? Yeah, man. Uh, so I did my my research uh, before joining. I went. I walked into a recruiter's office, and uh, you know, I, I had already talked to a bunch of friends that had joined the service, and I was like, "Hey, man, do you guys offer airborne? Um, is there some sort of special operation stuff that you guys do? Like, what's the you know what what do we do here?" And the guy goes, airborne school, operations, like, you should just be proud to be called a Marine. And I'm like, fuck you, I'm out. So yeah. I walked, I was like, yeah, I get it. I was like, ah, not for me. <laughs> so I walked out and I went next door. And uh, I remember the recruiter, um, Jeffrey Nash. I still remember his name because I still keep in touch. Now, I went over to talk to Nash and I was like, hey, man, all right, let's sit down and talk. And he's like, what's up? I was like, I want to join. He's like, what? Aren't you going to play collegiate football? And I was like, fuck that. I want to join. And uh, he goes, well, what do you want to do? I was like, man, I, I want to, I just want to fucking go out there, kick some ass, and then uh, focus on special operations stuff. And he goes, well, listen, be an infantryman, get your feet wet, um, earn some rank, do all this. He's like, and I'll put in a package here for you to either go to ranger school or BSF. And I was like, perfect, let's do it. Um, so we did. Um, and like I said, left, got to Fort Benning and that's what made me, that's what actually made me join the army is because he kind of walked me through it and told me everything that I needed to learn, uh, and what I needed to do to become, um, you know, special operations or anything else. Um, so, you know, that's what I did and that's the reason I joined the army. Wow. That's, uh, that's insane. Um, so how, how long after you enlisted were you deployed overseas? Ben, I got there, uh, I want to say, was, damn it, I can't even remember, probably, I went, oh, graduate, I graduated around December, went home, got to my unit around January, and then we were deployed in June. Wow, that's quick. Yeah. When you go, oh, dude, it was so quick, especially, I was stationed in Germany, and so we were a fast deploying unit, which... Uh, it's a little different than everybody else because we're so close to, you know, Kuwait and, and all those places where we uh, got to fly into. So uh, our unit was currently being deployed. So we're what you like to call fast deploying unit. <clears throat> OK, so l- let me ask you this. When you get over there, uh, yeah. was there any thought of like, holy shit, what have I done? I, I should be in college right now having sex with oh. as many girls as I can playing football. Not a, I mean, I did my fair share of sleeping around in, in Germany, so <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Like, man, there's something about these German girls, man, you know, like no offense or anything, but they're tired of seeing white dudes with blue eyes and blonde hair. And, you know, here comes this Latino dude or, or, or the brothers, you know, a black dude, and they see something different. They're like, shit, I want me some of that. So it was 
it was easy in Germany, man. I was like <laughs> fishing in a barrel. It, <laughs> it, it was that stupid. Um, so no, I, I didn't miss it to be honest with you. And, um, you know, months after training in, in Germany and the freaking cold and it's snowing and, and just being miserable the whole time, you, you want to put your, your, te- your job to the test and everything that you learned, all your training, you want to implement it in your job. So that's what I was, uh, excited the most about is was, Man, I'm here. I I need to. Uh, I I want to perform on my best and do my job. So, to me, it was uh, it was just a moment. Like, come on, let's let's strap up. Here we go. Wow. Um. And so after Germany, then where do you get shipped off to? So we left Germany. Um. Ended up in Kuwait, and just like everybody else, you kind of do a transition there in Kuwait. Where they, uh, we spent about a week there. So you get acclimated with the weather, um, what it's like, how hot it is, running your gear, staying hydrated, running a few missions so you know what to expect. But man, they, they fucking oversell it because Kuwait is a lot hotter than Iraq. I mean, Kuwait is, f- you ever get a chance, grab Jesse's blow dryer and put it in your face. That's what Kuwait feels like in the summer. <laughs> like it, it's fucking brutal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then we made our way over to Iraq, which is not that far from there. And it wasn't that bad. It was like, holy shit. But, you know, we were out in the middle of the desert too in Kuwait. And, uh, so we made our way into Iraq and, um, we got stationed in a small town called Adamiya. Um, Adamia was the last place that Saddam had been seen before he went into hiding. And it was the last place where his sons put up a good fight before they got killed. So, okay. We, yeah, we took over their palace, um, and it hadn't been patrolled for about two or three years. There hadn't been any military presence there, um, till before we got there, I think 101st was in that, uh, that AO. And then we kind of got the uh debrief from them and then we took over man that's crazy did you, did you go inside the palace yeah yeah we actually did it was crazy man uh he had a pool in the back and uh you know unfortunately we never got the chance to fill it up just because we were always running missions and stuff but you know we used to go back there and put lawn chairs and sit in there and smoke a cigar at night and be like fuck you saddam <laughs> <laughs> we're smoking we're smoking in your palace motherfucker yeah oh dude we used to uh we had uh golf clubs and stuff out there so we used to tee off from uh from his back porch into the tigers river and uh it was just you know it was just one of those things man. it was pretty fun it's got to be surreal right because you see it on the news all the time like everybody else and then all of a sudden not only are you there but you're you're literally in saddam's palace yeah it was crazy um and i mean we we weren't living in the uh, saddam palace we were living right next to it where uh he kept his um his other wives oh i like that because uh, I, I wish we had that here <laughs> right it's like i want to rent this uh studio for you over here honey i'll be here uh tuesdays and thursdays <laughs> oh, that'd be so great so great make my life so much easier um yeah they got they got the iraq has got one thing right i think that's it that's it <laughs> uh so how long how long you in iraq for at this point um before i got injured uh-huh. or yeah before b- before you got injured 11 months 11 months in iraq that's a long time it was so the time that i was there in 06 through 08 deployment is what we call it um we were supposed to be there 12 months just like any army uh, unit but that's when uh president bush kind of came in and said you know we're not uh we're not long we're not having our military or army in there that long 
that uh, it's not making a difference. So let's extend the um, the deployments to 15 months. And we were all like, fuck yeah, more money for us. Um, so we got extended to 15 months. So when I was patrolling there, that was around the time that I should have been, we all should have been back um, in a bigger base getting ready to head home. Okay, and, and you weren't, obviously. No, no, no. We got extended. So, you know, we, we, we weren't packing our stuff up. We were kind of getting ready to uh, keep patrolling and doing our job. Um, and is that where you got injured? Yes. So um, we got word, uh, I want to say around April, that we weren't going home in June. And um, May 14th, man, um, I guess I'll just jump right into it. May 14th, uh, we started our patrol just like any other day, man. It was like five in the morning. You know, we're getting our trucks ready. Make sure they're all filled up. Make sure your windows are clean. You got water, you know, extra ammunition, the whole nine. Make sure your guns are up and running. And, uh, you know, we get going. And, uh, I, I'm, man, I think every Mexican out there is superstitious. And um, I used to always say a prayer before I rolled out the gates. It was just... I always said a prayer and, and, and Psalms 23, I always recited before I went out and, um, that day we needed to head out really, really fast. So I was getting my gun ready. I was getting everything ready. So I, I didn't, I didn't pray, um, or recite the uh, Psalm. So, uh, even to today, I'm kind of like, damn it, I should have done it. But so we roll out and, uh, it's a five vehicle convoy. I'm stuck in the third vehicle. And um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not stuck, but I'm in the third vehicle yeah. <laughs> as we roll out. And uh, I'm the gunner. Uh, we got, you know, driver was uh, Specialist Catterton. Uh, the truck commander was Staff Sergeant Campos. And then in the back, um, back left, we had Fleming, Sergeant Fleming. And then Specialist uh, Catter, uh, Specialist Harkey was in the back right seat. So we roll out, and um, the last vehicle gets hit with a small IED. It was nothing big, man. It was just like a, they weren't even trying. So, you know, we get out, we assess the situation, you know, we block off, and we assess the vehicle, and all that had happened was they blew up the um, the spare tire um, on that vehicle. So it wasn't... Was anybody injured? No, not at all. It was just the, the spare tire in the back. Okay. Because um, you know how we have them in the back of the Humvees? Yeah. Like, yeah. Kind of like the Jeeps. That That's kind of what it was. So it blew up the uh, spare tire. Um, you know, we tried to find them. We looked around, couldn't see anything. So we're like, all right, man, let's keep pushing forward. Let's keep on our patrol. Um, and when all that went out, I remember Campos kind of hit me on my leg as I was a gunner. And he goes, hey, there's your alarm clock. Wake the fuck up. I'm like, shut up. As he's reaching in my pocket to take one of my cigarettes out. And uh, I was like, dude, what the fuck? He's like, oh, you're still getting taxed for uh, for coming over here to the U.S., so I want to take one of your cigarettes. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was like, you bastard. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of the shit that we did, man. We were just kind of talking shit uh, with one another. And um, so we keep pushing on the patrol. Um, next thing I know, around 7 in the morning, man, um, the first two vehicles get engaged from the left-hand side. So let's say we're traveling uh, 12 o'clock. Um, they started getting engaged from the nine o'clock and um, the only way to turn on those streets was to our left hand side. You know, we're on a parallel road and the only streets you can turn to on the left. So when those first two vehicles got engaged, um, they had to push to the following street to turn because they had already missed that window to turn and they didn't want to back up and keep being hit and then turn. So what they did is they called it up. It's like, we're turning up there. You guys turn right into the incoming fire. And I was like, hell yeah, here we go. 
So as soon as we turn around, man, I just start hearing the the dings on the on the Humvee as as the uh, as the rounds start hitting. And I look up, man, and as I look up, I see these two Iraqis and a bunch of them right behind them with AKs and, and an RPK. And I just opened up fire on my uh, on my fifty cal, man. And I just remember started smoking people, and I was just dropping them left and right. And I was like, "Yeah, you know, this is this is what we train for." Yeah. And um, you know, my adrenaline is so high, man. I'm I'm on that freaking just uh, such an amazing high. I've never experienced it again. Uh, other than hunting, but my adrenaline was rushing through me, man. And um, next thing I know, you know, these guys start scattering around, and we all fall back into formation, and everybody is right behind me now. So we're the first vehicle. Uh, as we get everybody set back up, um, you know, we make another left to keep following these these assholes, and we kind of fell into their trap. Um, and as we did, you know, we turn around, we turn left, we start seeing other ones, start engaging, and as I'm engaging, we go over this bump. Like I had mentioned earlier, we've been there 11 months, so I knew this area like the back of my hand, man. Like, I knew exactly where we were at. I, I knew the neighborhood, and I knew there wasn't a bump on that road. <laughs> As I'm trying to process everything that's going on, the biggest IED that I've ever heard went off. And at this point, I've been blown up about 10, 11 times. And um, this one goes off, and the guys behind me said the vehicle went up about five or six feet in the air. You're talking about a ton of vehicle. Holy so, shit. Yeah. So, actually, what they did was they dug about 200 pounds of explosives from one house into the middle of the road and started packing it. And uh, it was a command detonation, which means there was a guy in the house that was detonating the um, the IED. Well, I think he felt like he was too close um, and kind of panicked a little and hit the IED in the backside of the Humvee because he was supposed to hit it right in the middle and it would have killed us all. Like we would have all been done because that's, that's kind of where the weak part of the Humvee is. So he hit the backside and that's what made the Humvee go up. Um, but unfortunately, when he hit it, it's where all that diesel came into the vehicle. Um, so IED goes off, truck goes up in the air. Uh, truck comes back down. I hit the platform and my legs kind of crumbled a little and I fell into Harky's lap, um, the back passenger on the right. As I fell on his lap, um, I looked into his eyes, man, and his eyes were clear, like white. And he was done. He had been killed by the IED right then and there. I mean, he didn't suffer anything. Uh, it was just quick and done. And I remember laying there and, um, you know, in, in 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 our world, man, in the infantry world, it's either you come home alive or you don't. You know, I never knew there was such a thing as coming home injured and living somewhat of a normal life. That wasn't in my description. That wasn't what what I was going to do. You know, to to us, dying in the battlefield is just as, as, as glorious as it gets. You know, that's that's if you're going to go out, you want to go out on the battlefield. Yeah. And um, so I remember laying there and I was looking at Harky and I just remember seeing Harky's eyes and, you know, I just kind of, I looked at him and I was like, fuck man, damn it, not Harky. And, uh, so I laid there and I looked to my left hand side and the uh, driver Catterton had jumped out of the vehicle and so did Fleming and they were both running on fire. But I remember watching them and it looked kind of like the movies, man. You know, when everything slows down and you see everything so detailed yeah, that was right then and there, man. Like I saw them going so slow, but they were running so fast in flames. 
And uh, we were fortunate enough that two other guys jumped out with fire extinguishers and put them out and started um, rendering aid to them. Um, shortly after that, um, you know, everything kind of sped back up again. And I remember Campos grabbed my leg and was screaming at me to get out, to get out of the Humvee. And I just looked at him and I was like, nah, man, I'm good. Like, this is, this is it for me. I was like, you get out. And uh, he couldn't get out because his equipment had actually melted into the Humvee, into the seats. Wow. So he, he couldn't get out. And um, I remember right then and there, man, I uh, I started making peace with God, dude. I, uh, you know, the religious stuff has always been in me, man. I'm, you know, when you're Mexican, that's that's big in our community. And um, I remember I was praying, man, because I had lost faith in God, dude. At that point, um, we were the hardest hit unit in Iraq since any other unit since Vietnam. Um, that's how many guys we had lost. We already had um, Ross McGinnis, who was uh, who had been awarded the Medal of Honor, um, you know, for jumping on a grenade and saving everybody. You know, he passed away. Uh, ninety-seven, I think it was like ninety-seven percent of the company all had either bronze stars or some sort of um, um, valor um, medal. Uh, I think about seventy-five percent of the company had Purple Hearts. Like that's that's how bad the area was where we were at. Jesus, uh, and, and and at this point, like, now that you you know you're talking to God and and all this stuff, yeah. like, it, are you in pain? Like, are you in extreme amount of pain, or are you just in so much shock? In so much shock, and the adrenaline still was rushing. So, as I was laying there, um, you know, I, like I said, I had lost faith in God because I had lost about fourteen friends, man, that I saw on a reg like every single day, and now they were gone. And uh, here I had just lost another one next to me. And so I was making peace with him and I was asking for forgiveness for not believing in him. And um, all I was saying, you know, take care of my mom because I knew my mom was going to was going to take it the hardest out of anybody. I knew that it was going to affect her more than anybody. So I, I was asking him to take care of her and I was asking for him to give my brother the strength to be the older brother now since I was going to be gone. And um you know, I mean, I, I understood that my dad knew uh, was going to take it OK with me dying because, you know, he's a military man himself. So he wouldn't know um, how to handle himself. You know, not that it's easy to lose a son. I'm not saying that, but um, he knew what I was getting into. You know, if anybody of them knew what I was getting into, it was him. So I started making peace with him. I started asking God for forgiveness. And um, man, as I was laying there, um, even to today, man, I'll credit God 100 percent. Uh, I felt this inner light inside of me, man. I felt some strength come over me. And in the back of my head, I felt somebody say, not today. This is not where you die. Get the fuck up and get out. And um, I got up, man. I met my 50 cal. There was there was guys on the rooftop. I started shooting back. And the the flames were so high that the rounds started cooking off. You know, it was so hot that the, the rounds started exploding. And one of them went off inside the barrel. And that was kind of my, uh, you need to get the fuck out of here. Um, and as I was doing that, uh, they were able to get to compost. They pull compost out of the Humvee. And as I'm getting out, a grenade goes off and kind of peppered my whole right side of my body. Jesus Christ. You're <laughs> kidding me. No. So that goes off, um, at this point. And as a gunner, you're, you're always taught to jump from the gunner's hatch into where the engine is at. And then down, you know, the Humvee's about six feet high. Um, so I couldn't do that cause the whole front of the Humvee was on fire and so was the, the back. Like I couldn't go either way. I had to jump to the side, uh, and I'm still in flames. So, you know, it was a quick decision. I jumped to the side when I hit the ground. Uh, I remember I was able to grab my M4. So I grabbed my M4, I jumped to the ground, both of my legs hit first, man. And 
uh, I broke both of my femurs. Both of my femurs popped out of my legs. Um, and I remember doing the uh, whole stop, drop, and roll because um, I was set on fire with both femurs broken. And all I can think of in my head was the day that I find the motherfucker that invented the stop, drop, and roll, I'm going to sue the fuck out of him because it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the fact that that was going through your mind during all of this is is hilarious to me. Um. Oh yeah, so th- th- that whole stop, drop, and roll didn't work out. Um, thankfully, there was a guy behind us. Uh, one of my other buddies kind of ran up to me and uh, had a fire extinguisher, and he said, like, "Close your eyes, close your eyes." I'm like, "Why?" And before I had even, I mean, I closed them, but kind of late. But he, you know, sprays me with the fire extinguisher, puts me out. And uh, at this point, we had about 30 to 40 insurgents start making their way down the road to start fucking trying to kill us all. And uh, he's like, I'll be right back, man. I'll be right back. I'm going to go get help. And, um, you know, as he was running back, he got caught in the firefight and started shooting back and kind of, I don't think he forgot about me. But at that moment, I think, you know, trying to establish a a secure location was a little more um, important. So he did. And, um. I remember laying there and I remember seeing movement on the rooftop. So I started shooting my M4 up there and, uh, you know, just to kind of get some support by fire uh, for my guys. And, um, you know, I ran out of the ammo. So I was now I was just sitting there and uh, one of my other guys ran by me and he you know, he looked down and he's, he sees me and he's like, um, are you alive? And I remember looking up on him and I was like, I think so. And uh, he's like, holy shit, let's, let's get you to a Humvee. Let's get you to the Humvee. Well, a Humvee had moved in front of mine, um, you know, to give support by fire down there. And um, he, he looks at me. He's like, all right, man, I'm going to pick you up and take you to the other Humvee. And I said, okay. Um, but I think my legs are broken. And he takes a quick glance and he's like, no, 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 you're fine. And I said, okay, you sure? He goes, yeah, you're fine. And I said, okay. So he picks me up. You know, I start putting, I put all my weight on him, you know, obviously, because I, my legs fucking hurt. So I start putting all my weight on him and we get to the next Humvee. And, um, before he opens the door, he's like, all right, man, I got to let you go really quick because I got to open this door. You know, we had our, our Humvee doors were like 500 pounds. They were up armor Humvees. And, um, so he lets go of me, he opens the door, but as he lets go of me, my, uh, my femurs break again or not re-break. They just came out of place again. And, uh, my legs gave out and I just remember seeing him, the Humvee and then the sky. And I'm laying there and he looks over at me and he goes, holy shit, are you okay? And I was like, I told you my legs are broken. <laughs> like, he thought I was playing with you. And uh, he looks at me and he goes, are you not in pain? And I was like, no, get me up. I think the adrenaline was so high still because, I mean, all this happened in a matter of like, you know, minutes, 15, 20 minutes. It wasn't, you know, like I was there for hours. Yeah, but 15, um, 20 minutes with, with all that you went through with the IED, the grenade, uh, everything else, I mean, God, that still is, it had to have been an immense amount of pain. Like, that's just, that's hard for me to comprehend. Yeah. I mean, well, like I said, I think the adrenaline was so high and, uh, you know, I was still focused on the job that I, I really didn't feel anything. And um, so he finally puts me in the Humvee. And, uh, man, things just went from worse to, I mean, from bad to worse just because the driver we had, um, like I mentioned earlier, we had lost so many guys that we were getting replacements at this point. And this guy was brand new to the platoon. Uh, it was his first day out on patrol. It was his first day in country, man. Like, talk about bad luck in this little Ooh. fucker. And, yeah, so, you know, in the back of his head, he's like, holy fuck, does this happen every day? Like, shit, what did I get into? 
And um, so he was screaming. You know, he was scared. I don't blame the guy, man. 100% don't blame the guy. I think I would have acted the same way if that would have been my first experience on a deployment. So I did what any other NCO would do. I grabbed him and I slapped the shit out of him and I said, shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, shut the fuck up. Come your ass down. We're going to get out of this. And I asked for the headset because at that point, uh, the truck commander of that vehicle had jumped out um, to render aid. And so I had the, um, the gunner. Uh, so I remember said, give me the fucking headset. I'm going to call into the company. Well, as that all was going on, man, I remember hearing two black hawks over my head and I was like, holy shit, I'm about to go home. I thought this was the fastest medical evacuation I had ever, ever seen happened. Well, what had actually happened was there was two black hawks in the area that had seen the smoke from the IED and decided to go check it out. Uh, and we were, man, extremely thankful and blessed that they did because they came around and, dude, all we just heard was just, uh, you know, that little, that beautiful noise just and smoked everybody on the ground. Um, kill all the insurgents and whatnot. And, um, you know, and they're like, all right, guys, we got to go refuel. Um, we'll, we'll try to come back out as soon as we can. And, you know, they did. And um, I get on the mic and I call it up and I was like, I got four wounded and I got one KIA, one killed in action. Um, I'm going to need a medical evacuation ASAP. Um, we'll be in route in five. And they're like, okay. So as I'm calling all this up, they had no idea that I was one of the ones that was wounded. And um, when I was doing all this, the medic jumps in my Humvee and starts working on me. You know, he starts assessing me and starts, you know, giving me an IV and just, just, you know, doing what medics do. And uh, I remember looking at him and I was like, hey, doc, let me get some water, man. I'm fucking thirsty. And he's like, oh, man, I can't give you any water right now. Hold on. Let me keep doing what you're doing. Uh, what I'm doing. And I said, dude, give me some fucking water, bro. Like I rank you. Give me some fucking water. And he's like, don't, don't drink too fast. Just sip. And I was like, okay. So I was sipping the water and this is where I made the biggest mistake of my life, man. I poured it over my head and, um, you know, all the chemicals from the IED, from the fire extinguisher, everything rolled into my eyes and I went blind. I, I couldn't see anything. Wow. And um, right then in that moment, um, I realized there was two things that I could do. I could either freak the fuck out and scare the new guy more than he was than there already was. Uh, freak him out, freak the dog out, freak everybody the fuck out. Or I could just man the fuck up and tell this guy how to get out of there because we were the first fucking Humvee again. And I was the only one in the medic in that vehicle and everybody was ready to push. Wow. So, uh, man, I, yeah. uh, and there's got to be pain at that point, right? Yeah, pain starting to come, starting to, it's starting to make its way towards me. And uh, I was like, fuck, like I'm starting to feel it. And um, so I finally get, uh, I get, you know, I hear the comms over the radio and they're like, we're ready to roll, ready to roll, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I was like, all right, we're pushing. Um, so the driver's like, where are we going? Sorry, I have no idea where we're going. I was like, dude, just drive and I'm going to give you directions. And he goes, okay. Um, again, I couldn't see anything, but being there 11 months, man, I knew like the area, like the back of my hand, like I told you earlier, like I knew exactly, like it's pretty much like you at your house, you know, you can close your eyes and you probably know where your refrigerator and, and, and your bedroom and all that shit is at that, that, that was my backyard for 11 months. So I knew where the fuck we were at and I knew how to get back to my home, um, back to my fob. And I started giving him directions. I was like, dude, keep going. I was like up ahead. You're going to see a freaking pink house on the right hand side. You see it? He goes, I see it. I said, churn. 
So he turns and I was like, once we get up there, I was like, you're going to see this house. For some reason, this house had a huge bell in their front yard, man, like a huge, huge, like church bell. I have no idea what it was there, but it was there. And uh, I said, you're going to see this huge bell in somebody's front yard. And he's like, I see it. I see it. I was like, take that right. And he's like, I, I, I took it. I took it. I said, punch it. You're going to start seeing the fob coming up. And he's like, I can see the gates. I can see the gates. I was like, how far? He goes, 400 yards. And I was like, cool. So I called up and I said, we're, we're, we're incoming. I got four vehicles. I got one KIA. I got four wounded. We're coming in hot. And I was like, we might need some some you know, some support in the front door just in case they try to come towards us. Um, we rolled in. Uh, and when we rolled in, I knew that we only had three medics working with us. And uh, they opened my door and I closed it. And I said, and they're, you know, they're trying to get to me. And I was like, go uh go help the other guys so I was like there's four of us there's only three medics well i was lucky enough that right next door to us there was an sf group uh the guys that were there so they had an extra medic um so they finally pulled me out and um as they pulled me out when one of the guys was pulling me out my whole skin kind of just came apart into his hands like it just kind of peeled off of my on my off my body and, uh, you know, he's freaking out. He was like, shit. All right. So they finally pull me out. They take me inside of the stretcher. And as I'm laying there, I see the other guys come in. And, uh, you know, I looked at them and I was like, all right, boys, we're going home. And every single one of them kind of nodded their head. Yeah. And Campos wasn't really responsive at the time. So, um, and I couldn't really, really make any conversation with him. He just kind of looked at me with his eyes. They kind of said, like, hey, I'm good. Um, so we walk in there and oh, they, we lay us down and, you know, they finally hit me with the morphine. And I honestly don't remember ever saying this to my medic, but he said, I looked at him and I was like, dude, if I die, it's on you kind of, kind of shitty, but, you know, um, and then they said I was busting jokes cause they were putting, um, they put a, a cap in my head, you know, to keep the, the heat in my body and, and whatnot, whatever they do, but they put this cap on my head and, uh, he said, I remember looking at him and I was like, this sir, get this fucking condom off my head. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, this is no time to joke around, <laughs> you asshole. And they were just laughing. They're like, no, 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 it's not a condom. You know, and I was, I was just delusional at that point. But, um, man, shortly after that, uh, we got loaded up again and we were taken to the uh, DOZ where the uh, birds were coming in to pick us up, to take us uh, into the green zone. And uh, we got taken into the green zone. And, um, you know, we got there and then they started with at, at, at this point, I don't remember anything because, you know, obviously they put us down and they, you know, they start working on us and surgeries and whatnot. How, how much and, time um, not to interrupt you here? Sorry. Um, but how much time yeah, elapsed from the time you were hit to the time that you were actually in surgery? I want to say about an hour. I were in 30 minutes, maybe. Holy shit. That's that's a long time, man. Yeah. 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 So I think tops was about an hour. Um so they start surgery, they do all that stuff, they kind of stabilize us, but they know they got to get us out of there and get us to the burn unit in San Antonio. Um, so what they did is they load us up, they put us in a bird, and they flew us into Germany, um, into Launchstuhl, which is a huge, huge military installation there for the Air Force. And now uh, the Air Force have these uh, C-17s, I believe, that in the back, they're pretty much a hospital, man. They have everything and anything that they need to operate and, uh, and keep you... Um, uh, to keep you stabilized while they, you know, they fly you into either Walter Reed, which was in D.C. or San Antonio. And um, for us, you know, we were getting flown into San Antonio because of the burns. Uh, the Brook Army Medical Center is the number one place in the world for burns. Um, so 
we were uh we we get to launch tool and the bird that was waiting on us actually took off uh because you know they were running out of time so we were, we were running behind we were like eight hours behind and um there was no any other flights going to san antonio till the next day so the doctor that was in charge there called that bird and said hey we got four guys here that my two of them may not make it um till tomorrow um i know you guys are like six eight hours into the flight but if you can turn around and come get these guys we'll switch a new crew with you guys and get these guys back to san antonio will be amazing um so thankfully you know god was with us and they turned around they came back they landed and they had a new crew um to replace those guys but those guys refused to get out of the out of the cockpit um because I, I believe pilots are only allowed to fly a certain amount of hours or something i'm, I'm not yeah I'm, i think it's something like that um but they refused to get out and they were like and this is this is all i heard all this story from from guys that were there and, and, and other air force guys they were like they refused to get out and they were like get the fuck out of our plane we gotta go so they refueled were, were you um, were you the, one of the two guys that wasn't going to make it when he said that uh i'm not sure i mean all of us were pretty fucked up i mean compos was pretty fucked up i was given like a 30 percent chance of living so was fleming and and, and catterton was uh i think he he had a higher chance of living I and mean, do they tell you pretty, that when you're there do they say hey they, this is uh, look i'm gonna do the they, best i can but you got a 30 percent chance to live yeah they told my parents actually oh, not me God, i mean I, i'm gonna be awful yeah, I'm unconscious at this point, you know. So the bird turns around, grabs us, takes us, brings us in. You know, at this point, all of the logistics, everything that's going to happen, happen. You know, people went to my house and for my parents. Um, and, uh, you know, they informed my parents. And I landed in San Antonio, May 16. And my father saw me uh, being wheeled into the hospital in a stretcher. And my dad said, I look like the thing from Fantastic Four. That was that swollen. He's like, that wasn't you. He's like, even to today, I refuse to think that was you. Um, so roll into there and, um, you know, while we're getting surgeries and whatnot, um, Campos didn't make it. Uh, he passed away June 1st. Um, they amputated both arms, both legs. But unfortunately, his burns were so severe in, in, in his intestines and all inside his body that he, uh, he just he couldn't make it. So he, he ended up making it. He passed away. Um, my parents were told to uh, start planning for for a funeral because, you know, they didn't think I was going to make it either. Uh, so I was given 30 percent chance of living. And um, around that time, my brother and his girlfriend at the time had, had gotten pregnant. And um, it was going to be my first niece, first grandchild, first everything for our family. And um, she used to walk in every single day and grab my arm and put it in her stomach and was like, you need to live. You need to survive. Your niece Haley wants to meet you. She wants to meet her uncle. You can't leave her. And um, man, my mom and my dad said that I used to move a lot. And the doctors were like, this is good. This is good. He's being responsive. Like he hears you. And, um, I don't, I don't remember this to be honest with you, man. I, I might've been responsive. I just don't remember it. And, uh, she kept doing it for a while and little by little, man, they said my health is starting improving and started getting better. And, uh, they, you know, my chance went from 30 to 50 to 70 to 80 and they're like, yeah, he's going to be okay. And, um, you know, spent three months in an induced coma. Um, and at this point I probably had, fuck, I don't know, 20, 30 surgeries. Wow. Um, Yeah. Um, just cause of the burns, skin grabs, all that stuff. Um, when I woke up, um, I remember 
I was wrapped everywhere. I mean, I got, I'll send you a couple of pictures. I was pretty fucked up. And, um, every day with, with burns, uh, when you get a skin graft, what people don't understand is that that, that top layer skin's going to die no matter what it's going to die. So what you got to do is you just got to scrub it off. So the bottom skin heals and closes up. So every day that I was being taken out of the shower, I was putting on this metal, um, I was put on this metal, f- like, I uh, mean, I don't even know what you call it. It's you like, call a, it like a gurney it's or a- yeah, it was like a gurney. It was all metal and they would take, they would roll me into the shower and the fucking thing was cold, man. I remember. And, uh, they rolled me in just cause it was so sanitary to clean afterwards and be used the next day. So I wouldn't get infections. And, um, they rolled me in and I remember they start scrubbing on me and the pain was so excruciating, man, that I will pass out and I wake up back in my room and with fresh bandages and everything. So that went on for a couple of months till my skin really, um, healed. And then my niece was born, uh, in October, which I mean, I was, I was excited. She was born on the, uh, on the 11th of October. And how old are you and, at this uh, point? Uh, I was fuck, 23, 24, maybe, uh, let me see. 21. I was 21. 21 years old. So all, all you went through all of this and you were still only 21 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm 32 now. I was 11 years ago. Yeah. Sounds about right. Um, so I was 21 and, um, so my niece is, is born and, uh, I'm in the, uh, I'm in the burn unit in, in four East. Um, still can't really walk. Uh, you know, I have to learn how to walk all over again. And, this is kind of where everything started, man, um, for me. Like, this little girl not only pushed me when I was dying, but when I was alive, she pushed me to um, to to learn how to walk, to learn to get out of the hospital, because I needed to get out to the um, the visitor's side to hold her, because they couldn't bring her into the burn unit, you know? She's a baby, and it's all the infections and shit that's in the air that, that could have potentially killed her, you know? Of course, and, yeah. Um, so... You know, the doctor's like, come on, Omar, you, you got to you gotta kick ass. And dude, for three, four weeks straight, man, every single day I was doing PT twice a day to gain my strength back because I wanted to hold this little girl so bad. And I finally did, man. I walked out of the hospital with, with a walker, made it to the uh, the, guest, um, the guest room in, uh, or lobby or whatever. And I sat down and my brother pulled her out of the baby stroller and put her in my arms and man did i cry dude i gave tears were flowing i was like man i'm holding my knees like this this little girl like you have no idea what you've done for me and uh dude ever since that day man we've had a, the closest bond you can think i you know i have two nieces two uh three nieces and two nephews and i absolutely like they're both my brother has two and my sister has three and you know, she has two bo- two girls and a boy and my brother has a boy and a girl but, you know, to this day, I absolutely love every single one of them with all my heart. But Haley and I have a bond, dude, that is just, I can't even explain it, man. This little girl means the world to me. Like, she she and I, she should have been my daughter. It's what my brother says all the time. He's like, that little girl is your daughter. And, um, man, I 100% believe it, dude. <laughs> we're, we're, we're so close. And that little girl means the world to me. Man, so uh, boy, I, f- forgive me, man. I, I don't, I don't know if I've ever gotten like this choked up on on this show before. Um, so, sorry. Uh, so when you when you get home, 
what is the process like for you to try to get acclimated back to a, a normal life? Not only from you know being in the military, but uh, but now you know after all these surgeries and skin grafts and all this stuff, like yeah. uh, how do you how do you try to even attempt to get adjusted at this point to you know the real world again uh, at 21 years old, having gone through what you just went through? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I spent a year in the hospital, man. It wasn't it wasn't like six months and I was out. I spent a year in the hospital and then I spent another two years in the San Antonio area. So from 2007 to 2010, I lived here in San Antonio full time. Like I had a house uh, that we rented here and all my surgeries, everything were all done here. So I stuck around, um, around this area, which in, in a sense, it helped me out a lot, man, because I had the support of my family because they dropped everything, brother, sister, mom, dad, they all came up here and they were with me 24 seven. Um, but I had the support of other warriors, man, because around the 2007 was during the surge. And that's when, when it picked up with IEDs and, and everything, you know, a lot of people were getting killed and burned and losing legs. And it was just a, a, it was a hard time for the military. So the good thing about it is that we had one another. I had all these guys around me that were either worse than I was or not as bad, but we were all feeding off each other. You know, we were. In a sense, man, we had the drinking bros, uh, bef- like in the burn unit. So it was probably like the burn bros or something. Uh, <laughs> Should be a subgroup, you know. Group, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you know, we we constantly um, we constantly made fun of each other, man, and that's really what helped, you know. And you know, I, I would I would make fun of all my buddies and and whatnot, and you know, you name it. We had it in there: white dudes, black dudes, fucking dudes from like some islands and shit i never even heard of that i didn't even know they were a part of the u.s and i was like holy shit that's a thing and they're like yeah and i was like oh fuck cool right 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 well and, we, own, know, <laughs> we own that territory yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah fuck yeah <laughs> so you know we we make fun of each other and i'll be like man you just guys are just overprivileged mexicans you look like a fucking mexican and they, you know they start laughing and i had buddies like you look like a fucking refried beaner and i was like oh shit that's a good one <laughs> so you know the, the dark humor was always there man and it's honestly it, it's kind of what helped me get over myself um and uh, I went through therapy with Michael Schlitz, which is a good friend of ours. You know, yeah, as well. yeah, yeah, great guy. And um, yeah, dude, I fed off a lot of of that man. Like Schlitz was missing his fucking arms, burned ninety nine percent of his body, and and he come in there and tell me like the fucking funniest jokes. You know, he come in, he's like. Okay, Omar, and then he's doing it with his little fucking nubs. He's like, "What do you do when you have a string, and then you have four oranges?" And I'm like, "I don't fucking know." He's like, "All right, here's what you do: you tie them, you put an orange, uh, you slide an orange down, you make another knot, you put another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. You know what you have?" And I was like, "No." He was the world's largest anal beads. <laughs> I was like, "What the fuck?" I was like, what the f-? So, you know, like, shit like that, man. And, like, he come in there and just fucking leave, like, laughing. And I'm like, what the fuck just happened? And, um, you know, that's kind of what helped me out, man. Him and Bobby Handline. And, um, you know, I was around a lot of fucking great guys, man. So we all, f- like, you know, we were all feeding off one another, man. And, and it was just, th- that's what helped me. Family, uh, humor, hunting, you know, then I started, I got back into the hunting thing and, um, that, that just, man, that, that just brought me back to life. So when I went back home to Brownsville in 2010, cause I finally retired out of the army because they weren't, they were, they didn't allow me to stay in. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to do my 20 years, man. At the end of the day, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do 20 and get out. 
and I wanted to be a drill instructor or a drill sergeant or whatever, but I just wanted to keep training troops. But at the time, they didn't have what they have now. It's called a co-ed, which allows you to stay in. Um, so I could have been a drill sergeant or something, but at the time they told me no because I was going to scare some of the new recruits, and I was like, good. That's the guys that I don't want in my army. Like, That's the guys that I don't want them to go overseas. If they're scared of seeing me, then what do you think is going to happen when they get there? Um, so they, they denied me and ultimately they wanted to give me a, uh, a desk job. And I was like, I get it. I know how the army works. We all, we all play an important role in the military from whether it be from a cook to, to, um, finance to admin. I mean, we all play a role in the military. I get it, but that just wasn't my cup of tea. And I ultimately decided to drop my paperwork in and, and head home. And, uh, you know, I went back home and, you know, I mean, man, my community back at home was amazing and understanding. So I've, I've never, I don't know if it's me, I've blocked it out or what, but I've never, I've never felt like an outsider. I've never felt like I look different than anybody else. Cause I think in my head, like there's times where I wake up and I look at my hands and my hands look normal and I have my legs and stuff. And I, you know, I might be a dream or not, but I've never, I've never felt out of place. I know I am. I know I'm different. I know I don't look like everybody else, but to me, it's just I've gotten used to this body and this is who I am and, and that's it. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's interesting you say that because, you know, for me, I, I didn't know any of your story whatsoever. Like every time, you know, Jared or Matt or Evan or somebody would talk about Crispy, they'd be like, oh, man, you don't understand. That guy's the biggest badass of all time. You don't know what he went through. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't. But I, I, I've known you as just a person. Crispy, you know, uh, Omar, the person for so long. Yeah. That you're always just a hilarious dude. Like, I, you know, <laughs> it doesn't really like, uh, you, you know how some people, I don't want to say they use it as a crutch, but like whatever their injury is or deformity is, whether oh, you're in the military or out of the military, by the way. No, no, no. A lot of people do use it as a crutch. You, I mean, I use it. So, sometimes I do. Like when I don't want to do something, be like, oh, my leg hurts. And, <laughs> you know, I usually get people like Matt or Evan or, or Logan or Baker to do it for me. And just I play that card quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, some people live their life like that, where it's just the injury defines them or whatever happens to them defines them. When I met yeah. you, it, it doesn't at all and 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 you never have brought it up one single time you're just always a hilarious upbeat dude and i'm like fuck man that's 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 crazy (laughs) um i mean i think it's got a lot to do with um i always say this but i don't know if it's true but my hispanic heritage man just being mexican and being those fucking that type of dude that is just like you know what you've been held this fucking hand all right fuck it who cares move forward and uh i just think it's such an injustice to sit at home crying over fucking spilled milk like it already happened dude there's nothing you can do the fuck about it yes people die in war it's what fucking happens so why am I going to be in my room, locked away, throwing days that I can never, ever get back? Because that's time wasted that we're never going to get back. So why am I going to sit at home, complain, uh, think about suicide when I know the brothers that I lost would trade places with me in a fucking heartbeat? So to me, it's 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 an injustice not to live my life to the fullest, not to inspire others. Uh, it's just, I feel like I'm going to throw away a fucking talent and, and share my, my story with someone else. Cause this is a fucking testament that, you know what, man? Yeah. Life's a bitch. Life's going to knock you down. But if life knocks you down, make sure you land on your back so you can look at it right in the face, get the fuck back up and say, what else you got, bitch? 
Man, I look, it's, it's an unbelievable way to look at life, and it's what everybody should do, and I think it's what everybody thinks that they would do in that situation, but uh, I'm going to be honest, like after hearing your story, I don't know that I would have gotten up. Um, and, and that's another thing, man. I, 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 get that, I get that same statement from a lot of people a lot, but let, let's put Ross Patterson on my shoes that day. Ross Patterson has a beautiful wife and two beautiful kids. Do you think you're not going to fight your fucking hardest to survive because you know you have family back at home? No, you're right. And, you know, I think it's nice to say that I would and I hope that I would. But, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean, don't sell, you, don't sell yourself short because no, not at, all. at the end of the day, like we're, we're humans. We're, we are going to fight to the fullest to survive because that's all ultimately that we wanted. What we want to do is be alive for as long as fucking possible and survive. So I always tell people, don't sell yourself short. Don't say that you can't do it because ultimately you're going to fight 100 fucking percent to stay alive. Yeah, I, no, you're right. And again, I, I, I hope to never be in that situation. Um, and I hope I, not. I would have, I would have liked to think that I would, I would do the same as, as you have. Um, but man, you were an inspiring individual. Um, Thanks, man. And uh, what are you doing now in, in real life? Now, tell everybody. Everybody hears me talk about you almost virtually on every show because uh, Grill Your Ass Off is a sponsor on Drinking Bros and, uh, and oh, yeah, they're, Revolution. They're so great like, guys, yeah. And I, I always uh, hype up your your seasonings. And again, my wife really, <laughs> did, my wife really does cook with that shit like three times a week. So oh, that's awesome. We got to get you some more of it then. I, I know. Um, I know. Man, yeah. Nowadays, man, I, I, you know, I've been blessed enough to uh, have the platform that I have on social media. So I, I try to use it to uh, the best of, of, of my abilities and, and to inspire people. I do motivational speaking. Um, I share the love for the outdoors. Um, you know, I, I, you know, just share my love for weapons and, 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 and everything that I do with everybody. And it's just it's been great, man. You know, never in a million years that I think I was going to have the platform that I have to inspire others to to even have a small impact in somebody else's life, man. So when I get those messages of people like, hey, man, because of you, I stopped being a bitch. And now I'm like at the gym doing this and I'm lifting this much. And I'm like, that's fucking awesome. I like, keep kicking ass, man. And because of social media, I've been introduced to kids around the country that have been burned. And and that's my passion, man, because. Listen, it happened to me at 21 years old, and, and I'm not going to lie, man. I did my fair share of fucking running around with women, even after I was fucking hurt. Like, I was just a fucking a, a mess, and, you know, and I lived a great fucking all-American life, and, and I did everything that I ever wanted to do. I accomplished it, and so in that sense, I, I lived a great life, but when it's a child that's been burned at that age, like, they got to grow up that way and they're going to get bullied by kids because at the end of the day, man, kids in school are fucking assholes and they're a reflection of their parents and they're going to do whatever they want. Yeah. But you're going to have these kids picking on, on kids that have been burned because they're young. And that's, that's, that's ultimately that's what we do as humans, man. We pick on, on the weak. And, um, so, you know, I try to be a mentor for these kids and, and I'll go meet them and, and I'll fly all over the place. And, and you know, I, I do it on my own dime, man, just because that's my love. That's my passion. I want to be a mentor for these kids. Like if they need anything, they know they can pick up the phone and, and I'll try to make it happen. And and that's another great thing, man. Social media, I put something out. I'm like, hey, guys, uh, my little buddy Owen, you know, burned when he was four years old. He's 11 now. 
uh, he loves hats. Let's let's do a fucking hat run. And next thing you know, his mom's calling me wondering why he got a thousand hats to his house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so stuff like that, man. Like that, that's that's kind of what I'm doing. And obviously, you know, hanging out here with Matt, Evan, and you know, JT and Logan, and I mean, just everybody here, even Dave. Even though I don't fucking like Dave, but whatever. Well, no one does. Um, no one does. Yeah. No, fair. Fucking so. asshole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you know, I get to do a lot of great stuff, man, on social media with with Baker and everybody else, man. And then it's just. Uh, Man, I you know what? I can't complain, bro. Life's great, man. I'm I get to wake up every single day. I have a fucking beautiful girlfriend who who puts up with me every single day and just like supports everything that I do, man, and it's just uh I I couldn't be more blessed to have the people that I have in my life. That I'll leave it at that. Like I'm just blessed. Like there I have nothing to fucking complain about. That's amazing, man. Uh, again, you're one of the most inspiring people I know. I've been following you on social media for a long time. Obviously, we've been friends for a couple of years, and uh, yeah. I, I really appreciate you sitting down for this episode. Now's the point in the show where we get to the drinking bro of the week, and uh, I will give it to you. Who would you like to give the drinking bro of the week to? Holy shit, that's a tough. You know what, man? I'm gonna give it to my dad. I'm gonna give it to my dad, Guillermo Avila, out of Brownsville, Texas, for. Not only serving our country, but for inspiring me and for making me um, the man that I am today, for always whooping my ass when I fucking deserved it because I was being a little asshole. But because of him, I am who I am today. And uh, yeah, man, I'm going to give it to my dad. He, he's a fucking awesome guy. That's, uh, hey, that's, that's the best person to give it to, in my opinion. Uh, cheers. Cheers to your father. Um, yeah. Where can every tell everybody where they can find you on social media and all the outlets? Man, my biggest one is Instagram and probably Facebook, and you can find me both uh, under Crispy Eleven B. Crispy Eleven B. Yeah, uh, Omar. Again, man, thank you for doing it. Thank you for being on the show, and thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, brother, it was a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. All right, man. I love you, man. Cheers, everybody. Good night. Yeah, man. Good night.